Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So we've been reading through the book of Revelation last fall, some, and then this spring as well. This winter, I know it doesn't seem like spring yet, so I should be careful saying that. But this winter, as we're almost at spring, we've been reading through the book of Revelation as well. And we've been focusing on the fact that the theme of the book of Revelation, this last book of the Bible with all its wild and crazy stories and visions and monsters and angels and all this kind of stuff, it's about the fact that Jesus wins. Just when you think evil is going to triumph, just when you think the devil's going to have his victory, he is defeated and Jesus wins. And that's what we've been, re- we've been reading about and exploring in the book of Revelation. We've been reading Revelation because this year at the chapel, we've been thinking about the idea, the truth that God is on the move and God is working in our lives, in our community, in our families, here at the church, and in our, in our world as well. And here, as we look at Revelation, we're seeing God's end game. We're seeing how he ties it all up and we're, giving a, we're being given a preview of the final chapter and how it's all brought to a conclusion and how God's movement in this world is ultimately the victory over evil and, and God's kingdom and glory is here forever and ever and, and there's new creations and new people living in this, this glorious world that God has, has created and, and uh, brought into being after destroying the devil and his works as well. We come to chapter 12 as we read through Revelation and, and this is another one of those little episodes in a great majestic divine pageant that John sees unfolding before his eyes as he's been given a vision of God's work in the world today and in the future as well. And in chapter 12, we see this woman who's ready to give birth to a baby, and she's not just any woman, she's a very glorious woman, and we see this monster, this fiery red dragon who's ready to eat her baby. I mean, talk about something cruel and gross and horrible. And then there's all kinds of other stuff going on, and there are these people who are trying to be faithful and following Christ, and they're being persecuted, and yet God delivers them as well. And all this is unfolding. All this is taking place here in Revelation chapter 12, and that's where, going, where we are going to be reading today. Now, the thing is, is that as you read through this, this majestic story here in Revelation 12, we see very clearly that the dragon, who's also known as the devil or Satan, he is defeated. He is defeated by Christ. And he's defeated on three fronts. There are three parts of this battle, this cosmic war where the devil is defeated. Now, I know you and I go through life and we think the devil's very powerful and we think that he seems unstoppable, and we hear about more and more things politically, socially, in our world, all the violence, all the the moral and and, and, uh, social issues that just disturb us and frighten us, and it looks like the devil's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And yet the truth is, is that he has been defeated already. He's already defeated. And his resistance to God is actually futile. It's actually something that's worthless for him to try to resist God. And yet God permits him to continue to struggle and fight 
and grab at trying to seize power, but he's ultimately defeated. And so we see here in this story, in Revelation chapter 12, how the devil has been defeated, was defeated at the cross also, and how that victory is borne out in the future and in our lives today. And so when you feel like the devil's got the upper hand in your life, when you feel like evil is going to win over you or win in your world, you need to remember that the devil has been defeated by Jesus. Jesus has defeated the devil, and we're called to live like it. He has already been defeated, and we need to live like it. Jesus is victorious. He's already won. So let's live in that victory that we have in Christ as well. So I'm reading in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. This is on page 1034. And I want to invite you to follow along, please, as we read there. Page 1034, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven... A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he, the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. This is God's word. I tell you, that's quite a bedtime story, isn't it? That's, this is pretty wild what John is seeing here, but, but you get the gist of it. There's a beautiful woman crowned with stars, glowing like the sun, standing on the moon. She's in, she's in labor pains. Now, I mean, I've seen pictures of this and she always looks very beautiful and soft, you know, soft focus and that kind of stuff and, you know, glowing, you know, with that radiance that a woman has when she's pregnant and, you know, she's a beautiful Madonna like that and that's not the picture here. <laughs> There's this, this woman who's screaming agony because labor started. It's a freight train that doesn't stop and here it comes. Your baby's on the way. And she's just about ready to push that baby out. And she's screaming in agony, even though she looks so glorious. Who is she? I think the best way to explain who this woman is is that she is the people of God all through earth. We understand all through history. We we understand that these are all symbols. It says when there's a great sign in heaven. It's talking about something that's symbolic. It's not a literal person like the Virgin Mary or some other historical woman who gave birth to a child, but we're talking about the people of God who have given birth to a male child, and we'll identify him in just a moment. The other person you can't help but seeing in this story is there's a gigantic red dragon. It's not the doctors and nurses attending the woman while she's giving birth. There's a monster there standing in front of her, ready to devour the baby, the male child that she's about to give birth to. He wants to destroy that child and kill it. He's a gigantic red dragon. Now in the ancient world, when people talked about dragons and they thought about them, Uh, they would often think about the sea monsters that they believed lived in the depths of the ocean. They talked about them, called them things like Leviathan or Behemoth, and we read of them in the Old Testament in the different Psalms and Job and other places. Leviathan. Leviathan was a sea monster, a giant sea serpent that was like a dragon that that would devour and destroy sailors that wandered too too far away from shore. The ancient people of the time where these things were written, they believed that these monsters that lived in the depths of the ocean had the power to destroy and uncreate and bring chaos, and they were the embodiment of evil. And that's the imagery that John I think through the vision has received from the Lord this giant dragon, this big red seven-headed sea monster has come up and he wants to destroy the child of this woman who's about to give birth. The dragon is described fiery red just again because he's a, he's a symbol of great violence and wickedness and murder and bloodshed. He has seven heads talking about a dominion, representative of a dominion over all the earth, a totality of authority. He has seven crowns on his heads, just again indicating the authority that he has to influence and and manipulate and coerce the peoples of the world. He has 10 horns, and I don't know if those are on the heads or on his back or what exactly, but horns in scripture were always a, a symbol of power and authority and military might and strength. 
And so here's this dragon, this monster, ready to devour this child that's going to come from this pregnant woman. And this monster has this authority and power over the world, this might and strength over all of of humanity, and he wants to destroy this child. The woman has the the 12 stars, glows like the sun, stands on the moon. That's a a picture from Genesis chapter 37. Joseph has a a dream, a vision of of his brothers bowing down, his mom and dad bowing down before him. And it's a picture of Israel, but more than Israel, it's the people of God. Yes, Israel is part of that. But the people of God throughout history who have trusted God, followed him, have been loyal to him. This child is coming forth from that people. The child is described in a very powerful way. It says, and I believe it's in verse four, excuse me, verse verse two, or rather verse five, I'm sorry. He gave birth, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Did you pay attention when we were reading in Psalm 2? Today, the son that everyone is told to kiss and embrace, the son that was installed on God's holy hill, Mount Zion, the one who is going to rule over the nations, he has a rod of iron. This is Jesus that's referred to here. It's Jesus, the son of this woman, the son of Israel, the son of the people of God, this one who's come forth. He has come to rule over the nations and exercise the authority of God and take the kingdoms of the world away from the devil and his authority, seize them from him, from the devil, and make them the kingdoms of God. God's kingdom has come to rule over the kingdom of this world. It says also that this dragon sweeps a third of the stars from heaven and casts them to earth. We read down a little further in verse 7 that there's the background of, of this imagery here. War rose in heaven, and Michael, the chief of the angels, the, the guardian of Israel, the leader, the chief officer of the angels of heaven, he's fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels, that's what those stars are. They're not talking about the physical stars that we study in astronomy, but the angels of God's glory, they're called stars. And the devil's angels fought against Michael and his angels. I want you to see something very clearly here. Many of us tend to see God and the creator and judge of everything, and then we see the devil and we kind of think that he's the the anti-God. He's like God's equal, God's opposite. And that this is kind of a dualism where the two gods are fighting each other. I want you to understand very clearly that the devil is not the opposite of God. He's a creature. He is subservient to God. He has to obey God. He has to do God's will. He's in rebellion right now, there's no question. But it's important to understand that he is standing against God, but God is putting him in his place. 
Read further what goes on here. It says that there was war in heaven with Michael and his angels fighting against the devil, the dragon and his angels. But the dragon was defeated and there was no more place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. He was thrown down to the earth. And later it's going to be describing it in in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth, then he pursued the woman. The picture here in all of this description is that the devil is fighting against Michael and the angels in heaven. Michael and the good angels in heaven defeat the devil and his angels and the devil is expelled. He's thrown down immediately to the earth. It's a sudden reversal. A sudden defeat. And it's like when the devil wakes up, whoa, how'd I get here? You were defeated. The first area of Satan's defeat is in heaven. As a creature of God, as one of the holy angels, Lucifer, the light bearer, the son of the morning, he rebelled against God. He betrayed God. He lifted himself up in pride and said that he would be like God when God has no equal. And in that rebellion, he led other angels astray and they rebelled against God, fought against God, trying to take over God and his kingdom. But God's angels fought back and defeated the devil, the dragon, Satan. And he was cast to earth. So he couldn't take over heaven. And now he's been cast to earth. That's the first area of his defeat. He has already been defeated in heaven. This took place back before the creation of our world. He was defeated in eternity past. And now he has come to earth. And he is being defeated and has been defeated there already as well. This child that the woman is to bear, it says that he has a rod of iron. He is the one that will put down all evil. He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who will defeat evil once and for all, this Christ child. And it says that when he, she gave birth to the male child who is to rule the nations with the rod of iron, but it says her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The devil couldn't devour him. Think about Christ's life. When he was born, There he was, living in obscurity, born in a a manger, in a stable. Yes, we know about the wise men and the shepherds, but never forget the part of the Christmas story where King Herod wanted to destroy the Christ child, wanted to kill him because the one who had been born, king of the Jews, was there in Bethlehem. And so Herod, the king, ordered the extermination of all the male children below the age of two. And Mary and Joseph, being warned by God, fled to Egypt with the Christ child, and God miraculously spared his son's life and protected him from the the destruction that Herod was trying to bring. Think about the rest of Christ's life as he grew up and lived in Nazareth and then began his ministry. How even when he started his ministry, he began in the desert and the devil tempted him there. And the devil tempted him and said, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and God's angels will catch you. It was an attempt to try to destroy Jesus in that moment. And then there were other times where, if you just bow down and worship me, the devil said to Jesus, you'll have all the kingdoms of the world trying to get Jesus to somehow serve Satan in his human flesh. And the devil trying to destroy Jesus that way. And and then there were the Pharisees and the religious leaders that were constantly 
angry against Jesus and wanting to kill him and plotting against him, trying to murder him. The crowds at Nazareth wanted to grab him and throw him off the cliff. But in every case, Jesus was indestructible. Jesus' life was spared until it was time for him to surrender his life. And he allowed himself to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was put on trial before the religious leaders. And then, after their beatings and mockery, he was put on trial before Pontius Pilate. And in all those cases, Jesus spoke the truth, told the truth, did the truth. He is the Son of God. He is the King of the Jews. He is worthy of our worship and loyalty. And he never backed down from telling the truth. And they condemned him for telling the truth. They condemned him because he was the King of the Jews. And they executed him, nailing him to the cross. And the thing is, in that moment, the devil thought he had defeated Jesus because now Jesus is dead. He's been killed in such a horrific, shameful way, dying on a cross. He's dead. The devil's won, so he thought. But then he rose from the dead. And he ascended into glory. And that's what John is seeing here in this description of the male child who rules with the rod of iron. God spares his life and and receives him up into glory. Yes, he died on the cross, but he was vindicated. He was glorified, resurrected, and exalted into glory where he rises above all the principalities and powers, all the demonic powers and authorities and angelic realm. He's over them all. And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's the ascension. You might be wondering, how come John doesn't emphasize in this story the cross and the empty tomb? I mean, aren't those things important? Of course they are. But he's focusing on the climax of it all, the exaltation of Christ. That he's been ascended, raised up to glory, and he's now seated by his Father at his own Father's right hand in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's interesting that in the book of Colossians, you might want to jot that down and look at it later, Colossians chapter 2, and like verse 13 and 14, it talks about how Jesus, when he went to the cross, as he was dying on the cross, he was winning the victory. In that moment of utter defeat, he was actually victorious, and he conquered all our enemies. He conquered that that list of charges against you and I because we've sinned and we've broken God's laws and we have failed in doing God's will. We've hurt ourselves, hurt other people, offended God. We've done all that. We have a a rap sheet, so to speak, a list of charges and accusations against us. And it says that Jesus took that law and those broken rules and regulations and that shame and all those offenses and he nailed that to the cross. It was nailed with him as they put those nails through his hands and feet. That sin, that guilt, that shame was nailed to the cross. And then it says in the very next verses that Jesus ascended into glory and as he ascended into glory, he completely disarmed all the angels and powers that were arrayed against him. One of my dear pastor friends, whenever he preaches on those verses in Colossians chapter 2, I've always, this image is always stuck in my mind, and I hope it sticks in yours, and I hope it gives you goosebumps too, like it does me. 
But he says, as I picture Jesus doing what Colossians 2.15 says, that Jesus is ascending into glory, I see the demonic powers attacking him as he's going up, and Jesus is just going like this. No big deal. No muss, no fuss. I've conquered you. You're completely disarmed. I am victorious over you, and you are defeated. The devil refuses to surrender. He's so incorrigible, so stubborn, so rebellious. He's the, ultimately, the ultimate do-it-yourself person, as Dan was talking about. And yet he's defeated. He's defeated through the cross of Christ. He was defeated in heaven, the war that took place there. He was defeated on the cross. And you say, but wait a minute, you know, you're just talking about, you're making a big deal about he was ascended, he was raised up to the throne of God, caught up to God in his throne. You'll notice later in verse 11, it says there that the, the people who have surrendered to, to Christ and are following him, that the, the devil, the dragon attacks, they overcame him, they defeated him, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb. It's in the death of Christ that the devil was defeated. It's in the death of Christ that our guilt has been cleansed away. It's in the death of Christ that the power of sin over our lives has been broken. It's in the death of Christ, it's in the death of Christ that our shame has been covered, no longer to be seen by anyone anywhere in the universe. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the victory that he's talking about here. Now, just as Christ is more clearly explained by being called the child that has the rod of iron over which he will rule all the nations, it's important that you and I understand how the devil does work in this world. And he's described in this passage as well. Because, you know, you can say, well, that's great. The devil was defeated in heaven and he was defeated on the cross. If that's true, how come I have so much trouble resisting temptation? How come this world is getting more and more evil? How come it looks so dark? How come it's so discouraging? How come I struggle so hard at resisting the devil if he's been defeated? Why do I keep sinning? Why am I so discouraged? Why am I so broken? Why do I have my hurts, my habits, and my hang-ups that weigh me down? How come if the devil's defeated? The reason is, is that yes, he has been defeated, but he refuses to accept that full defeat and surrender. And so now what we have unfolding as we get closer and closer to the end of time, we see the devil as it's described here, he's getting angrier and angrier and angrier because he knows his time is running out and he's doing more and more and more wickedness. You know, you and I, if, if we know the boss is coming and we've got to give a report and give an account for how we've done our jobs, we, if we know that, that accountability is coming up, we really work double hard to make sure that we've got a good report to give. You know, we add a little extra, make a few more sales calls, we teach a little better, we do other things a little better because we know we're being watched. The devil knows that his day of accountability is, is coming and instead of cleaning up his act, he actually acts worse. He's actually doing more evil deeds, more wickedness because his time is running out. He's so stubborn and so rebellious against God, so unwilling to surrender to him. And so what we see here is, is God has spared his son and he's also sparing the woman that gave birth to, to Christ, but the devil seeks to persecute him. 
And it says that this woman flees into the desert and she is given wings like an eagle to fly to the desert and to find a place of safety. And I just want to go on record here. I don't think the eagle is the United States. I just want to say that, okay? And I don't think it was the sixth fleet out in the Mediterranean and our jets and, you know, cargo planes, you know, an airlift that takes, you know, the, the, the godly people that are being persecuted out into the desert to Petra or somewhere like that. I don't think it's that. I really don't. But Isaiah chapter 40 does say that those who wait upon the Lord, he shall renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Because you wait on the Lord, because you trust in him, God is able to preserve and protect them and do that. It says that as the woman flees into into the desert, as she's going to this place where God is prepared for her and is protecting her and providing for her, It says the devil is so angry that he tries to wipe her out with a flood. And it's, John has the picture, the imagery here of the the serpent, also known as the dragon, also known as the devil. He opens his mouth and this, this water comes rushing out. And it's like a flood of a raging river. And he's trying to sweep the woman away and destroy her and her offspring, all the people who are following God, who are followers of the male child, male child who rules with the rod of iron. And the devil tries to destroy them. And, and it says that God miraculously opens up the earth like this big cavern opens up and it just swallows up all that water. What is that water? What is he talking about? Is he talking about a real flood? I want you to think about all the things the devil does to try to fight against you and I. All the things he does to try to wipe us out. This passage makes it clear to me, and I hope to you, is that the devil really doesn't have any power. I mean, it wasn't God fighting against the devil. It was one of his angels. He's just another angel fighting against other angels. And the devil himself doesn't have any power. His power is in his words. The things he says to try to deceive us and lead us astray. I want you to notice how the devil is described in verse 9. It says that the great dragon was thrown down. And then John kind of goes into an explanation here. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down. That's a threefold description of who our greatest enemy is, who the devil really is. It's important for you and I to understand this. John makes it very clear in this description of this monster, this sea monster, this seven-headed red dragon that he sees. It's really just the serpent. Where do we see that serpent somewhere else? Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are living in paradise, and the serpent comes and deceives them and leads them into disobedience and rebellion against God, their loving creator. This dragon is called the serpent, the one that was there in the Garden of Eden leading Adam and Eve astray. He's in rebellion against God, and he's trying to get as many other people to rebel against God as well. It also says that this serpent, this ancient serpent, is also called the devil and Satan. Those two words, devil and Satan, they mean the same thing. It's the idea of an accuser or a slanderer, a blasphemer, someone that is making an accusation, constantly criticizing, constantly condemning you, making an accusation like a prosecutor in that way, 
constant persecuting and prosecuting the people of God in that regard. And it's interesting because the, the Greek word uh, diabolos is where we get our word devil. And then Satan is the Hebrew word for the devil as well. And it's just the idea of the accuser. He's constantly blaspheming and blaspheming God and accusing the people of God and condemning the people of God. That's another thing that he does. And then John says, in case you're still confused about who he is, he's the deceiver of the whole world. He's constantly tricking us. He's constantly seeking to beguile us. He's trying to, you know, he masquerades as someone who's good and right and just and for you and really he's against you. And he really is about doing what's right, but really he's against, he's really for evil and doing what's wrong. He's not about helping you, he's about harming you, but he lies about it the whole time. He's not for you, he's against you. He's a deceiver, he's a liar, he's a trickster, he's a fraud. And he's constantly trying to lead the people of God astray. In fact, not just the people of God, but all people astray. Even his own followers. To destroy, to destroy them through his deception and his lies and his deceit. So when that dragon, it says, is spewing out this flood of waters to try to sweep the woman away, what is he using? He's using his lies. He's using his slander. He's using his accusations. He's stirring up persecution through these lies and slanders. I mean, think about it. Do you ever condemn yourself? You maybe never thought about it that way, but you know, you're working in the garage and you do something and maybe that, uh, the head of that nut breaks off or, or there's something you drop and it, it breaks or you're, you're, you're teaching your kids or you're helping them in some way and you make a mistake and then there gets to be a fight or an argument and you kind of go like, oh, I was so stupid, why did I do that? And you kind of beat yourself up that way? Where does that come from? <laughs> you say it's you talking that way? It comes from the devil, that condemnation. I can't tell people about my sin. I'm too dirty. I can't ask for someone to pray for me about what I really need help with. I'm too dirty. I have failed too much. I'm too awful. If they really knew about my past, if they really knew what I did, they would never, ever welcome me, accept me, love me, be my friend. We condemn ourselves that way. That comes from the devil. And he condemns us as well. And he condemns us to other people and he condemns us before God. That's his accusation. And remember, Jesus has defeated him because there's now no more condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. He's constantly slandering us. He slanders other people to us. We get in maybe a disagreement with someone or maybe there's a mistake or a problem or something like that. And we go, they did it on purpose. I know it. Oh, I know they're just trying to get back at me. Oh, I know. You just, they're just so insensitive. They're so forgetful. I don't matter to them. I'm not important to them. They don't care about me. He's such a jerk. And we hear those condemnations and that blaming of other people and condemning other people, and that comes from the devil too. It drives a wedge between us and others because we already assume the worst about them instead of assuming the best, like we're told to do. Passages like 1 Corinthians 13, when we love one another. 
So there's all this going on and the devil is able to trick and deceive and stir up people to persecute the people of God and to stir up the nations to rebel against Christ. And he only does it through his words. That's all. He has no other power except the power of lying. His goal is murder. His goal is destruction and violence and mayhem. But all he can do to make it work is by lying to you and to me. You're not good enough. God hates you. God forgot about you. You blew it. You're too bad. You're too broken. You're too sinful. You ought to be ashamed. He's constantly saying that to you and to me to destroy us. Jesus has defeated the devil on the cross. The devil has already been defeated in heaven. The way you and I can defeat him in our personal lives is through the power of what God has already done for us. It says, verse 11, those who conquered, conquered the devil, conquered the dragon, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. They understood that Christ has died for them. They understand that because Christ did die for them and rose from the dead, that there is no more condemnation in their lives. Sin doesn't have to have power over them. Shame doesn't have to have power over them. Guilt doesn't have to have power over them any longer because Christ has broken all that through his death on the cross. The victory of Christ is won by being the suffering servant. The divine warrior conquers the powers of evil by dying in our place, suffering in our place. He did that to give us victory. And the people of God who overcome Satan in their daily lives, they understand that. They believe that. They live like that. You condemn me, devil, God doesn't condemn me. Other people condemn me, that doesn't matter. The one who made me, the one who knows me the best, he loves me the most and he doesn't condemn me. Because Christ died for me and he took my shame and guilt. I don't deserve that, but I'm thankful for it. Mighty thankful for it. It's the victory in Christ. It's because of the blood of the lamb. He died for me. It says also, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And this just simply is saying that they love Jesus so much that they will speak up for him everywhere and anywhere. And it doesn't matter who they're talking to. They talk about Christ. And they're willing to do this even if it means dying for him. These people, especially in the end times, it's in their death that they're victorious. Their martyrdom, they're victorious because they love Jesus more than they love their own lives. Jesus says that's the essence of what following him is all about. Unless you love me more than your own parents, more than your own kids, more than your brother and sister, more than your career, more than your pleasure, more than your reputation, if you don't love me more than your own life, you can't follow me because you have to love me more than anything else. That's what Jesus calls us to do. That's the level of discipleship he's asking each and every one of us to give. And we say, I don't know that I can give that. But that's exactly what Jesus gave to you. When you and I are afraid that we can't be faithful unto death or when we're prideful and selfish and we say, I don't want to give myself to you unto death, Jesus says, but I've already done that. I've already loved you more than anything else. 
Jesus loves you more than anything else. Why? Because he died for you. He's praying for you. He's building a home for you. He's coming back for you. And if he loves you like that, if he gave himself for you like that, then certainly you and I can give ourselves to him and love him more than anything else. In fact, Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother and child and life, loving him so much that it looks like we hate everything else, that's really what we're called to do. You love and honor your parents and your children, of course. But you love Jesus most of all that everything else looks like hate because he's first. And it says that they were not, they were willing to be a faithful witness, a faithful testimony for what Christ had done in their lives and they were willing to even give up their lives and be martyrs for him. I just want to say this. For you and I to experience victory in Jesus in our lives, we've got to be evangelists. You've got to speak up and you have to share the gospel. And a lot of us don't share the gospel because we don't care about lost people. That's part of the problem. And a lot of us don't share the gospel because we're afraid that other people will reject us and ridicule us so we don't speak up. But this is saying that unless you, don't, unless you share the gospel, there really isn't victory over Satan in your life. There, there's, a, there's a time and a place to fully identify with him and say, I will speak up and identify with you even if they kill me. I'm your man, I'm your woman, I belong to you. I want others to know I belong to you, no matter the cost. There's one more thing that they had that sustained them, that gave them the victory over Satan in their daily lives. And I think will give you and I the victory. The blood of Christ does. A faithful testimony to Christ does. But there's one more thing. It says that the woman, she fled to the desert, to the wilderness, and she was nourished there for that time, times, and half a time. And earlier it's called 1,260 days. Either way you cut it, it's, 360, it's, it's three years and six months, three and a half years. And it's talking about that, that last half of the tribulation period, that God is going to protect and preserve his people. How? He's prepared a place for them in the presence of their enemies. A place for them in the wilderness where God will keep them safe. And I think about the child, how the child is described, the child of the woman. He's not born with a rattle in his hand or a baby blanket. He's born and he's got that iron club. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In all of this story, there's this sub-theme of God Specifically, Jesus Christ is our good, great chief shepherd who is protecting us with his rod of iron and providing for us even in the desert, nourishing us, supporting us, providing for us. They conquer Satan in their daily lives. Yes, because they know what Christ did on the cross, how he defeated Satan. Yes, they were willing to identify with him and stand for him and speak up for him, even if it means losing their life. But they know throughout all the battle and throughout all the persecution and throughout all the opposition and throughout all the hardship that they endure because they love and follow and are faithful to Christ, God is sustaining them. God is shepherding them. 
God is watching over them even when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. They will not be afraid. Why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare that table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is how we defeat Satan. It's not because we're so smart or brave or wise or clever or so spiritual. It's because Christ defeated him on the cross. And it's because if we love Jesus so much that we identify with him and death can't even stop us. And it's because in the middle of all this, we trust in him and he protects and he provides because he's our good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. So speak up. Testify of Christ. Share the truth of how Jesus has changed your life. It's a good way to fight against the devil. And the victory that belongs to Jesus becomes your victory as well. If you're standing on the the fence, you're straddling the fence and you're saying, I don't know if I really want to surrender to Jesus or whether I really want to surrender to the devil. Of course you don't want to surrender to the devil, but if you don't surrender to Jesus, you have surrendered to the devil. There's no spiritual Switzerland. There's no place of neutrality. There is no middle ground. There are no innocent bystanders. You're either for Christ or against him. And you have to choose. And you have to put your faith in Jesus. And maybe the good shepherd is calling you and saying, will you trust in me? And if you've never done that, today's the day to do that. And as a church, instead of minimizing risk, instead of minimizing danger, I think we need to embrace the danger and take a stand for what is right and good and true and identify with Christ, even if it means our community and our world doesn't understand us. To stand up, to speak up, to show up and make a difference because that's exactly what Christ did in loving us and giving himself for us as our good shepherd. Jesus has defeated the devil. He did. He defeated the devil. You don't have to defeat the devil because he's already been defeated by Jesus. But now you and I can live in that victory as we surrender to him, Jesus, our great shepherd, who is victorious over our greatest enemy. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege of being in your presence today. We sang earlier about victory in Jesus, and Father, I am asking that you would help us to understand the victory that we have in Christ, that we would see that the devil has been defeated. Show us how we are victorious in him, in Jesus. And may we have the courage and the faith to trust you day by day, to believe in the victory you've won, and to claim it, and to live it, knowing that you will sustain us for your honor and for your glory. This week, when we're tempted to keep silent and not speak up for you, give us the courage and wisdom, even if it seems like we're floundering and flubbing up. Give us the wisdom and the grace and the strength and courage to speak up for Christ and identify with him. When we're frightened and intimidated by the evil one, when we're being bombarded with his lies and his slander and his boasts, Lord, give us the courage to cling to your truth that the enemy might be defeated in our thinking and in our very lives. 
Father, help us as a church to support each other and not give up. To constantly submit to God and resist the devil. For he indeed will flee from us when we do. Because Jesus is our conquering king and he's given us the victory. We praise you in his name. And all God's people said, amen.